All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 4, Supplemental Episode 3. Today we've got a wide-ranging and fascinating interview with John Danner. John was the co-founder of another of the major internet advertising pioneers, NetGravity. John gives us some more great background on how the technology and culture of the advertising industry evolved, and because NetGravity was the company that built Yahoo's first advertising system, we also get some great details about early Yahoo. But John also gives us some incredible insights about what it was like during the dot-com era madness. So if you're currently an entrepreneur or are aspiring to be an entrepreneur, you're going to want to listen closely to the second half of this interview because John speaks some serious truths about the realities of growing a venture-backed startup business. John Danner, thank you for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you for having me, Brian. So, John, I read, and this is quite a common story, you'd, you'd be surprised, or maybe not, um, that your your love of technology came when your father brought home an Apple II. Yep. Uh, how old were you when that happened? Uh, Twelve. So you got into programming and computers and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I was basically what we called at the time a cracker. So my uh, profession as a high schooler was breaking copy protection schemes in, in software programs for the Apple II. That's a noble profession, I remember. Um, where did you Where did you go to college? I went to Stanford, okay. Double D. Um, and your early career, you were, you were with a, a bunch of really interesting companies: uh, Tandem Computers, Oracle, Silicon Graphics. Yep. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit. Uh, you worked on the the full service network, which was we've we've mentioned it on this podcast. It was uh, Time Warner's sort of interactive TV slash info highway effort. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, you, you designed, you worked on the Navigator program yeah, for that? kind of the front end app. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, that was an interesting era. So that was uh, the kind of 1993, 1994. Um, and I'm sure you've tracked this article down, but Jim Clark had I forget what he called it. It was like the network computer or mm -hmm. something like that, but it wasn't like the sun vision. It was his vision. Um, and, you know, the the concept was that we were going to be highly connected with with on these networks that would allow us to interact and do things together. And that was, you know, the Internet was happening, but it was kind of happening in its own silo. And so I think that um, Clark, you know, with – with Silicon Graphics, his idea was let's push this so that we can use our kind of graphics supercomputers to to um, make the network a, a bigger part of kind of everybody 
lives. And I, I was a young engineer. I worked at Oracle for several years. Um, we wrote a browser, one of the first browsers at Oracle was almost exactly the same time that um, Mark Andreessen was, was working at UIUC. Um, and um, so I was very interested in kind of the connected world. And I thought that Clark's vision of kind of how this would play out was really fascinating. And so I was recruited to Silicon Graphics to work on this full service network um, in 93. I think I joined early 94. Um, you know, and uh, I, I probably take away something from this that that uh, is more obvious to people now than it was at the time, which is that um, founders are both personalities, but also when the world changes, kind of the person you want on your team and the person you want to have enough power. And I think Jim Clark at that point at Silicon Graphics, you know, he'd handed over the reins of, of CEO. He was kind of a little bit um, pushed aside. And so he was trying to kind of carve out the future of Silicon Graphics by getting to much more commodity pricing on the graphics chips and all kinds of ideas he had. Um, but that was not necessarily uh, what everybody else at Silicon Graphics wanted. So, so literally, I got there um, in beginning of and by or beginning of '94, and by mid middle of that year, Silicon Graphics to start Netscape, um, taking you know Kip Hickman and Michael Choi and Terry Weissman and a bunch of other people from our group to, to start Netscape. And so um, it certainly, at least to me as a young engineer, became clear that, uh, you know, this, this, this vision of a very connected world at a consumer level was going to happen, but that if you trusted Jim Clark, which I think most of us engineers did, it probably wasn't going to play out as a pulse now that originally kind of come up came up with was these kind of silicon graphics graphic supercomputers feeding graphics down to you um, in your home and in the home you would have kind of a, a silicon graphics workstation a setup box um, which was really neat if you could just crush the prices on on the consumer side and work make it work well but you know in fact like all prototype projects harder to pull off than, than they seem. I still think it was quite an interesting system, but it was also very clear that doing this in kind of a proprietary way, um, you know, with, with Time Warner imposed a bunch of constraints that otherwise you wouldn't have. Varying kind of the way they were going to We just really wanted to get people connected and try to figure out the most immersive experience we could give them. And so it was a, it was a little frustrating that year. And so, so when the Netscape founders went off to build the company, I think it became clear to most everybody that was on the full service network project that, um, you know, the future was going to happen. It was just going to happen in a different form than kind of the full service network. Um, and so for me, um, by kind of the end of that year, I had kind of finished uh, the Navigator, which was a pretty cool thing, uh, a full motion video interface to this network where, you know, if you were changing channels, you wouldn't just flip the channel changer. You would kind of zoom in and out of, of this video to select what you wanted. So it was really neat from a prototype standpoint. But it was clear that that was not going to be the future. The future was this Internet thing. And so when... Netscape came out with the browser. I feel like their the version we started to see, which was before kind of their official open, was was probably late summer, early fall. You didn't need very much time on the Netscape browser to realize like that's what was going to happen. So I was twenty seven, I guess, at the time, um, and I I had always been interested in. 
um, entrepreneurship and starting a company, had almost done something in the uh, pen computing era that was right before and just kind of decided I couldn't, I wasn't sure that that whole thing was going to work. I wasn't passionate about it. So when the Netscape guys started, um, I really felt like, okay, it's time to, time to, you know, buck up and, and start a company. So I quit uh, Silicon Graphics, I think end of 94, um, and went through a process that I think is actually becoming um, more part of the routine for entrepreneurs now, but was, I think was a little bit unusual at the time. So I quit. Uh, I went off. I traveled for a month in Australia, came back. Did you and, Did you do a, you did a walkabout, I think? Yeah, I did a walkabout. I, I basically just spent a month or two and just kind of you know, cruised around everywhere in New Zealand and Australia and had a great time and cleared my mind. You know, the full service network was a fairly intense project. Um, cleared my mind and came back and, you know, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew that the internet was going to happen. And, you know, in early 95, that was a good thing to know because not many people understood that yet. So I felt like I had the advantage that I had seen the future based on this proximity to kind of the founding of Netscape and I better figure out what to do about it. Um, and, and the first thing I started to work on was kind of, you know, uh, how would media change? How would newspapers, magazines, et cetera, change with the internet as, as kind of the access to content became easier. And I thought about, well, maybe I should be kind of a new media company. And I realized within two or three months that like, I sucked at that. I just didn't know what to do. That wasn't what I was good at. But I had worked on kind of um, the business model behind what one of those sites would work uh, like. And, you know, at the time, I mean, again, this seems very obvious now, but in 95, people really thought that they were going to be able to um, largely construct paywalls and do subscriptions and things like that. I, I was just sure that that wasn't going to happen. I remember going to a, a lecture that Esther Dyson was doing back then. And she said, look, the, the problem is we've now uh, lowered the cost of distribution to zero. So anybody that thinks that they're going to um, take intellectual property that that's uh, replicable at zero cost and charge a lot for it is probably in for a rude awakening. And I, I really kind of believe that and bought that. So I thought that what the internet was going to be about was kind of, you know, um, attention catching, eyeball catching, and that advertising was the natural way to kind of take advantage of that. Um, you know, in by about uh, March or April of that year of 95, I think maybe Netscape had started to do some sponsorship on their pages, but it was pretty early. But so my concept was, gosh, I bet if advertising is going to happen – Knowing advertisers, big big brand companies, they're going to want to kind of account for this and keep track of it. And so that means that these websites are going to have to have a way that they report to the advertisers and can kind of verify and create trust that, that they're actually running the ads and, and how it's working. And so that was the idea behind my company, NetGravity, was just to, to um, help these new websites figure out how to monetize with with advertising. I had a friend who uh, had done a number of companies and he said that his commonality in, in the companies he'd done that were successful was that they were close to where the money changed hands and that, you know, being somewhere close to that stream is often a good thing because it's easier to take a piece of that if you're in the revenue stream rather than the cost stream. And so that really made sense to me. And, and so that's what I did. And so... And you, you, you started the company with a couple of a couple of friends from uh, when you were at Oracle, right? Right, right. So uh, Paul Nakata um, and Tom Shields, who were bo both Oracle engineers with me. You know, during that first six months, I was doing what I think, you know, Y Combinator has actually figured out now, which is wandering around, talking to people, trying to get people interested in what I was doing without a heck of a lot of stuff behind it, you know, kind of a a lightweight demo, but mostly like, Hey, you're going to want to do advertising, aren't you? You know? Um, and Tom and Paul would show up kind of once a week and work on the business plan, uh, with me and try to figure out what we were doing. And, you know, um, 
I think that's the reality for almost all founding of companies. You've got a founder who really, really cares and is in it all the way. And then other people who, you know, if it goes, the, they'll join and they'll kind of get going. And that's how it was for us. And so our, our big break, which is a pretty, um, you know, miraculous entrepreneur story is that, um, I had met a guy that, that, uh, that knew the Yahoo guys. So Yahoo at the time in 95 was literally just getting going, but they were one of those phenomenons where, you know, a couple kids started in, in their, in their dorm room or whatever at Stanford and pretty soon it's, it's accounting for, you know, 25% of all the Stanford network traffic and growing, you know, tons every day. Um, and so it was clearly a phenomenon. They had just kind of left, um, the dorm room in kind of, you know, summer, fall of, of 95, got some funding from Sequoia and trying to figure out what the business was. And so I somehow managed to find somebody that knew them. He introduced me, uh, and I went down, um, I went down to Mountain View where they were. They were kind of in the back of a trailer, not a trailer park, a, you know, one of those industrial parks, but it was pretty rinky-dink. There were, there were half a dozen of the Yahoo folks, the founders, Tim Brady, Tim Kugel had just gotten there, um, an advertising guy. Uh, and, and I said, you know, we kind of rolled out our crappy little demo and said, you know, we really think that to do – advertising properly you're going to need to be able to kind of account report this way and tim brady was kind of the the main contact and tim just kind of looked at us and said so we had a board meeting last night where we decided that advertising was the main way we were going to monetize on yahoo um and we need to do this right now can you have your system in here this afternoon that's let me interrupt you for a second because you know that's one of the things that i'm i'm trying to get get the story on um they did you get any sense that they were ambivalent about going with advertising as as a business model or maybe they were they were going towards it as a last resort or the only resort maybe i i don't feel like i mean tim or others uh, as you've talked to tim no i i'm trying oh. to get in touch with him oh i know tim well so just i'll i'll connect you with him but so um my impression was that yahoo had far less angst about advertising than almost everybody else um, in that era, right? I mean, the the Google story is legendary about advertising. I mean, Facebook had it. It's it's kind of quandaries. Many many people, many engineers felt like this was an awful thing to do. I felt like the Yahoo folks were over it. They were like, okay, we've got this huge thing with a ton of traffic. We want to build a big business, and advertising's a great way to do that. So I didn't feel like they were in any way resistant to kind of using advertising. So they they say to you, boy, you're right. Uh, your presentation on doing advertising is right what we're thinking of. And they essentially say to you, um, how soon can, can you get this rolling for us, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, of course, I'm a dumb, young, I think I was 28 by that time, dumb, young, 28-year-old in the fall of uh, 2005 and. Uh, I said, well, we'll just do it right away. We'll make it work, right? Go from demo to production system in a day or something, um, which, you know, in hindsight, after doing three companies now, uh, was probably not the correct expectation setting. <laughs> um, but we did go in there and, and, and we started working with them, which was, you know, really fun because they just had such a massive amount of traffic already um, that it was fun to just see what we could do. It was pretty clear, I think, to both sides pretty quickly that they would have to build their own system because they um, all the search engines really had such specific needs that were different than everyone else's that we could have either, NetGravity could have either decided that we were going to serve Yahoo and the four other big search engines or build a business. Right? Their, 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 their needs were so specific and they had you know 10 or 100x the traffic of the others. Um, but, but it was a really great start for us because we got to say, you know, Yahoo's a customer. And, um, so pretty classic entrepreneurship story after that. I went, um, I raised money. Literally Netscape had gone public, I think beginning of September of 2005. And so, uh, when I was going to see people on Sand Hill road, um, 
it was a frenzy. I mean, uh, just everybody and their brother needed to get into the internet. Um, I, I, I won't tell you the name because I don't want to, uh, to cast aspersions on him, but a prominent lawyer in Silicon Valley who was helping us uh, said, look, John, you need to name your company because it was named nothing at that point. And I said, well, what, what do you think I should name it? He says, I think you should name it Net Something. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what you name it, just Net Something because that's going to work. And so, and so um, we did. We named it Net Gravity. We had you know four term sheets within 30 days, uh, and we got going. Um, and we took, um, took a little bit of uh, seed funding and then closed our Series A with Hummer Wimblad, you know, a month or two later, um, so 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 we were kind of off and running, and and what um, you know, I guess as a founder of a company, you just basically are trying to apply the things you've learned in life as well as you can, and I think one of the things that um, I had learned, which I think served me well at Net Gravity, was that I had worked for Oracle, and Oracle is just a very strong sales culture, they always used to say like, you know, Oracle products are basically PowerPoint presentations because there's nothing behind them, right? They're just, you know, as long as you can sell the customer, you don't worry about the product. Um, that kind of served me well and kind of didn't. It served me well in that we sure went out and got a lot of business quickly. Um, we, you know, in that first year signed up like a hundred big websites um, and got our product in there. The bad news was that, you know, like all Oracle stuff, our product just wasn't awesome. Um, and so we were just constantly fighting this kind of quality and functionality stuff. And um, I think as a young CEO, I was much too focused on trying to build the business early rather than kind of make a great product. Um, the reason that might have been the right thing to do in hindsight is that there was such a, a land rush at that point. So many websites starting and, you know, we had 24 or 25 competitors within 12 months at Net Gravity. that, that going out and grabbing market share quickly um, and then trying to hold on to it may have been the right strategy, um, even relative to any kind of new market. I think kind of just moved. Um, fix things before they totally broke was probably the the right thing, but it was never deeply satisfying as an engineer because it's like, oh gosh, I really wish that I was getting feedback from all our customers that you know buying net gravity was the best decision ever, rather than you net gravity guys are not doing good stuff. So that, I, I guess I, I a positive and a negative lesson from that experience. Can I ask you a, about some of some of your early clients? Um, you know, basically. Uh, who were they? Were they mostly the 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 search engines becoming portals at the time? Do you um, re remember yeah, some of the early ones? It wasn't search engines because we just from the Yahoo experience, which by the way I think lasted three or six months before before they started to build their own system. But but it was very clear to us from working with Yahoo that those were completely different beasts and that we shouldn't like point our company in that direction. It would have been too hard. And, and there probably would have had to be a completely different business model. Um, you know, uh, goto.com, which became Overture, mm -hmm. that Yahoo bought was clearly the way that you would structure a company if you work with the search engine. So we really focused much more just on big media properties. I mean, we had, you know, everybody from Netscape and all of the tech guys here to uh, CNN, Warner, and um, you know uh, the, most of the big newspapers, both in the U.S. and internationally. So we basically just showed up at a point in time where the trend was for people to go, "Oh yeah, the subscription stuff's not going to work." we really need to be doing advertising. We need to play that way. I think the tech people were more clear on that. They didn't have legacy businesses that they were destroying. Um, but the media people were also very clear that they needed to figure out kind of if advertising was going to be the thing. And so that first year was basically just this frenzy of people who needed to have some platform by which they would start monetizing this stuff so they could justify their existence. And and was was Pathfinder a big one of those? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by Pathfinder. It's it's one of those 
big players I remember that seems to have gone down the memory hole. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. Um, all the stuff Time Warner was doing was was um, significant in that they did have a ton of early traffic. They were a top 10 site, even relative to the search engines back then. Um, you could kind of tell in working with all the media companies. I mean, it really didn't matter whether it was Time Warner or Disney or Viacom. I mean, we had all of them as customers. Um, you know, kind of the Clay Christensen thing of, of Innovator's Dilemma was just really at play in those companies because um, they had business models that were being massively threatened by this new medium. Um, and so as as much as they would try to create these new units like Pathfinder, um, they really couldn't escape the politics of the overall organization. If Pathfinder tried to give things away for free, that the magazines were monetizing, the magazines would then get a say-so over kind of what um, over what happened, you know, with their content. So it just it, it basically was kind of just not frictionless enough for them to be competitive in the long term. I don't know who's done the best of that set. CNN, one of our customers, was always better at that than the others. I don't know why, if it was just the personality and the culture of that organization, but um, by and large, a lot of them felt very, very threatened. I think Washington Post is another example of a company that kind of, for whatever reason, felt like they might be able to figure out what the future looked like. But it was um, tremendously difficult for those big media companies to deal with with Well, I like to ask actually in in that regard, how difficult is it to to convince a, a given client to to dip their toe in this water? Are are you doing a lot of hand holding and explaining it not only technologically but you know how your product is going to maybe deliver w- what you're probably hoping will be better advertising models? Yeah, I mean, you know what. We'll, <laughs> What we were really doing, so so the phenomena there in 95 and 96 was that I'm not sure I made any outbound phone calls. Um, they were all just people going, holy crap, I got to do this out. Those neck gravity guys are working with Yahoo and Netscape and whoever else. I better get them in here. Um, and, and so when I would come in, what quickly I think neck gravity developed as a company was not um, here's the path to you having a real business. It was, look, we know a lot about how this advertising business seems to be playing out for a lot of major websites. Let me share my wisdom with you on that, right? And that was tremendously interesting to people early on because they were just trying to figure out what their business plan was. And so having any understanding of what everybody else was trying to do. We were almost kind of a forum of best practices in advertising at the time. And I think that was really for the entire kind of four or five years of net gravity, the real value add. It certainly was not the product which wasn't good enough. It certainly was not that we were able to kind of uh, deliver a business model to somebody that, that may or may not have had one. It was that we were their best chance of dealing with either on the tech side, the opportunity of creating a real business or on the media side, the opportunity to not have your entire business destroyed um, just by having enough expertise on what was really going on. I think that's what value we actually added. Do you have a, a, a memory of what sort of results, I mean, I, you know, you don't have to remember exactly it was 7% click throughs or anything like that, but the the early advertising, how effective was it in terms of, well, yeah, I, yeah, I guess the, the click throughs and the yeah. attention and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think that um, my own impression of kind of all of internet advertising is that when you uh, introduce new formats, people tend to notice them, and so you have much much higher click through rates, but that people get acclimated to those new things pretty quickly and they go down quickly. So at the very beginning, um, you know, when you saw sponsorship ads on Netscape or Yahoo or whatever, yeah, they were driving five, 10% click through rates. Um, but you know, within even that first year, 
things have been driven down below 1%. I think that, you know, that was an era where targeting of advertising was not at all sophisticated. So it was really just kind of run of sight advertising. And so, um, you know, it was more dependent on trying to introduce new formats of advertising quickly enough that, you know, you could keep riding the curve of higher click-through rates before people became acclimated and bored with them. Um, and it really wasn't until Google and Yahoo figured out search term advertising that, you you know, I would say you actually saw um, direct marketing viable um, internet advertising, you know, that was a big change because now you, you actually could start to see um, stable kind of response rates and you could make calculation on customer acquisition cost and things like that. Whereas I think the run of site stuff was um, too unstable um, early on. Uh, you guys obviously, you know, are riding this wave and, and, clients are knocking down the door to you and and so you're you're writing the the growth of the, of the dot com boom and yeah. you guys inevitably do your own uh IPO in the spring of 98. Yeah. Um I'm I'm starting to ask a lot of people this question in terms of IPOing was it a was it a decision that you had to do it because all of your competitors are doing it do you have to do it because just everybody generally is doing it? What was the decision yeah. to to do an IPO like um in, in early 98. Yeah. I mean, it was complicated and this may be more, um, kind of inside Silicon Valley baseball than you want, but no, no, it, it, believe me, it's not. Yeah. So, so, you know, and I try to tell young founders this, um, the most important decision you actually make the the least changeable thing about a company is, is who you bring on as investors and board members. And, um, net gravity, we, we had investors that were kind of client server software people. They really believed in this model of you sell somebody a product for several hundred thousand dollars. And then, you know, if it works awesome, <laughs> um, and it was super clear to me it, it, almost immediately 96 middle 96 as I saw the first couple SaaS vendors in our space, DoubleClick and, and AdForce kind of um, spooling up that that was a really nice business model. It was kind of a deferred gratification model in that you drive these huge upfront payments, but you had this wonderful long-term kind of subscription revenue stream. And so, um, you know, my lesson was that I saw that I saw it right away and pushed like hell with our board to try to either build or acquire um, a software as a service uh, company and fought for literally two years um, to make that happen. What happened in 98 was we were literally, I mean, the ink was on both sides of the deal with to buy AdForce. Um, and uh, one of my investors, kind of big client server kind of mentality, just said, no, I don't believe it. This isn't going to work. Those guys are never going to make money, blah, 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 and killed the deal. And so literally my team and I had spent three months at least kind of making that happen. And three months in that era at the speed it was going was like three years. It was just a huge amount of effort to kind of get that deal done. And, uh, you know, one of my investor board members killed, killed the deal. And, you know, my, my takeaway, I remember going my CFO and I just went out to hit golf balls. Uh, we we're like, we just got to get out of here and hit some golf balls. So we're hitting golf balls. And, um, I say to him, so, we basically didn't get the company turned in the direction we needed turned. Um, we could shut net gravity down because we know what the future is and our board's not allowing it. Or we could basically go public. Um, and by going public, um, we're going to get those investors to be less interested in what we do over time and kind of have more ability to, to build a real company. So totally ironic, right? Like 
most of the time it's like, oh, well, we should say private because we've got more control. But if you're private and your board's not aligned, actually being public is better. <laughs> so mm-hmm, yeah. probably the screwiest reason ever to go public, but we really felt like we had to get to the place that we wanted to be in and being public like would allow us to kind of exert that control. And so literally uh, whenever that was kind of Q1 of 98, he and I decided let's just do it. Um, We go to the board, we say, look, we're just going to go public. We were 6 million in revenues, losing a lot of money, crazy time, but it was 1998. So, you know, people could go public with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but we were clear what was nice about net gravity was it, because it had this strong client server base, those are businesses, enterprise businesses that, you know, while they don't have the nice property of sub- subscription model, you have a model, you know how it's going to work and you know how to build your sales force. And so, we could show up at the bankers and say, look, we're six this year, we'll be 12 next year, and we'll be at least 24 the following year. And everybody liked that story. They were fine. It's like, wow, that sounds like an internet, you know, a, a real company as opposed to one of these like dogfood.com mm-hmm. companies. So by comparison, we seemed uh, stable. So we knew we could get it public, and we did get it public. Um, and that allowed us to kind of create more freedom to innovate ironically so very complex story but that's that's why we actually went public was to was to be able to move the company in the direction we knew it had to move right like you said it's ironic you had to you had to free yourself from your board yeah i mean that's i try to tell entrepreneurs this that investors and board members i mean there's there's just no um stronger relationship that has to be built in a company because you know you hire an executive and they don't work out that's that you can get rid of them you can't get rid of board members and investors i mean it's insanely uh difficult and so you basically just have to treat that as it as as a marriage i mean you're you, the, for the life of that company that's what you've got so that's uh was probably my single biggest mistake just another kind of interesting tidbit um you know, we had uh, kind of Hummer Wimblad leading Series A, and uh, Mike Moritz at Sequoia uh, was very interested in the deal. And I'm this young, stupid, 28 year old punk. And he says, "Look, John, uh, Sequoia needs to have at least 20 percent of a deal, and let me show you the math by which that could happen." I think he wanted to knock down our series a pre by a million and then put an extra couple million in whatever he made the math work and i said no mike i just don't want to take that dilution mm-hmm. <laughs> single dumbest thing i ever did right because instead i got an investor who will re- remain nameless that, mm-hmm. that you know they were fine they put money in but they caused me pain for years and so i think that um you know i guess that's just one of the things you have to learn the hardware um, the quality of your investor and their alignment with you and their ability to kind of think flexibly in these startup situations is just incredibly important. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So in eventually, um, NetGravity uh, is purchased by, by DoubleClick in, in October of 99. Um, I'm, I'm speaking with... Uh, Kevin O'Connor next week, and he emailed me yesterday, and he said to ask you uh, why you turned down his first offer. Yeah, well, the I mean, it's funny. In hindsight, 
and Kevin won't like this. You can ask him about okay. it. But, but in hindsight, um, and actually, I think Kevin understood this. I'm not sure his co-founder understood it, but you know, he had built this advertising network business where they would sell advertising, and it was not automated at all. Um, actually, Groupon was the most similar thing I've seen recently to DoubleClick, and that they just had thousands of salespeople running around trying to sell this stuff. Um, and we hated that business, just hated it, just thought it was a – I mean, somebody had to do it, but why would you ever want to do it? Um, and But um, underneath that, they had kind of a pretty nice uh, software-as-a-service technology to kind of run – um, you know, their advertising network. And we like that a lot. Um, so, you know, the reason I, I forget how many times we actually had serious conversations, it was two or three. Um, the initial one was like, we just have no interest in you guys because you're really sales guys and that's wonderful, but we're a technology company. By the second time we talked, which was, I think right before we went public, um, it was clear that at least Kevin understood that the future of DoubleClick would be this kind of automated advertising network, and that was far more interesting. That next deal got killed because of the same investor who had killed the AdForce acquisition killed that DoubleClick deal just because, again, he didn't believe in software as a service, so um, it cost everybody a ton of money. Um, and, and literally to finally sell to double click, I basically just had to tell the board, look, you missed it. You didn't figure out software as a service. I tried for a long time to do it. That is going to be the way this space goes. And you have missed it. At that time, we were a public company. We had ramped. We had literally just, I didn't tell the board. I just started a unit, kind of a little skunk works to build a software as a service business out of uh, kind of our technology, and it had ramped up. I mean, it's just maddening in hindsight, but you know, it had ramped up from kind of zero to kind of two million a quarter in like two quarters, mm -hmm. and was growing, you know, at like ten times what our other business was growing because that's what people wanted. It was just a simpler way to get going. So that was starting for us, um, and the actual the the the. The problem with the final sale to DoubleClick was that now the people on my board who had seen us pull that off were like, well, what's the big deal about DoubleClick? We just started this thing and look at how it's ramping. And I just had to explain to them that, you know, unlike standard software stuff, advertising is a scale game. So as you get a huge amount of traffic, you've got a lot more ability to work with large advertisers, etc., and you couldn't show up in that game late. There was a network effect to it. You couldn't just show up, you know, two years late and hope to make it work. It was good business for us, but we were not going to be number one. Um, and, and so, you know, it was time to sell. In hindsight, for me, if that was not my first company, I wouldn't have sold because the degree of difficulty that Kevin would have in getting rid of that old advertising business and transforming to kind of an automated network was was high, very, very high. Um, and it would have been far easier, kind of given the position I'm in now on my third company, to just basically tell everyone, look, we're going to pitch that old business, that old software, client-server software business, and go full steam at the software-as-a-service business and make it work. But I didn't have the power as a first-time founder. And look, I mean, they bought us for a billion dollars. It was silly money. It was uh, 25x revenues. Um, and, and so I think that that finally caused everybody to kind of get over the hump and, and, and whatever. But, you know, it's, it's one of those things where as you go through things as a, a founder, you kind of look back and you're like, gosh, um, there were really some things that went right and wrong. And I, I the, the big takeaway for me at NetGravity was just the frustration of knowing kind of even by 96 that software as a service was going to work and not being able to move the board. So I think the double-click acquisition was basically kind of just the culmination of that. Did you stay on with double-click after the acquisition? Not for a minute. Mm -hmm. 
I got plenty of advice from friends that the two pieces of advice were when you sell your company, walk away immediately unless they make it so insanely lucrative for you to stay a year that you can help with the transition. And they didn't, so I walked away. Um, and the second was sell as much stock as you possibly can as quickly as you can, which I also did. So two two good pieces of advice. <laughs> well, and good good timing on your part. Yeah. Um, so I, I do want to, we'll wrap up shortly, but I do want to talk about, um, the next part of your career because I find it really, really interesting. Um, you've basically, the companies, unless I'm wrong about this, the companies that you've done subsequently have all been in the education field and you actually, you actually were a, a public school teacher for a few years. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the, the, the kind of, so here I am 31 years old. I've sold a company for way too much money. Um, and I retire for six weeks and that of course doesn't go well cause I, I'm not wired to play golf with the rest of my life. Um, and, and for random reasons, I'd gone to a Jesuit high school in San Jose Bellarmine and, and they wanted me to help them out and I didn't want to help them, but they said, well, we're starting these middle schools in really low income neighborhoods. How'd you like to do that? And at the time, I mean, my, my thinking was there is nothing more soulless than ad tech. I mean, it is an awful, awful business. And look, maybe uh, being a hedge fund person is the same thing. But it, like, you can't really figure out what it is you contributed um, once you're done with that. And so that's kind of what my mindset was: was wow, I did this thing. It was great. I got to see the whole experience. But man, I never want to do that stuff again. That's awful. Um, and education was exactly the opposite, which is, oh my God, this is incredibly difficult, but like you're definitely changing people's lives every day. And so that was super appealing to me. So I started this one school in San Jose and then went off and taught for three years um, and just formed a, an opinion about the way education would have to change, mostly uh, around the idea that the problem with education was that we were trying to teach kids as a group, as a kind of a, a mass versus kind of understanding what each one needed to learn and teaching them what they needed to learn individually. Uh, and so Rocket Ship, my next company, was started around the idea of doing both kind of good individual learning as well as good project-based learning and kind of marrying these things together. So that was you know, my segue out of kind of ad tech in, and into education. It was very difficult, Brian. I mean, the the uh, thing you don't realize when you're doing software companies is how absolutely beautiful they are. Um, there's just so few people, so few capital requirements. Just it, just like they're very frictionless things. Um, and and education's the opposite. You know, super physical. Um, you know, you got to deal with real estate, large number of employees, um, in the case of rocket ship, because they were charter schools, a lot of politics. I mean, the friction just couldn't be higher, uh, in those businesses yet they make a difference. So <laughs> that was, that was kind of, you know, from, from one extreme to another, the, the frictionless, soulless business to the frictionful, soulful business, I guess was the transition. And and tell me about the company you're CEO yeah. of now, Zeal. Yeah, so Zeal basically came out of what I learned at um, at Rocket Ship. Um, you know, so after eight years of doing Rocket Ship, what I realized was that anybody who is building technology for education was just kind of paying lip service uh, to the whole thing because the problem was that the buyer of early ed tech was all schools, it was teachers and principals and uh, superintendents, um, and they kind of sort of cared about learning, but like it wasn't that important, and they had tiny budgets anyway, and so the companies that succeeded in that space were the ones with who spent most of their money on sales and marketing. You know, the budgets are like, you know, 70% of your dollars go to sales and marketing, 10% to R&D, 10% to everything else, or something like that, um, and just witnessing that as we were trying to use technology strategically at Rocketship just drove me insane. Um, and so Reed Hastings, who's a friend of mine and a supporter of Rocketship, and I 
uh, went up and found a company that was doing reasonable work, a company called Dreambox. He bought the company, put a bunch of money in. We sit on the board together and really tried to turn that into a company that would do this personalized learning in a way that we thought was valid. And, you know, my takeaway was that they've done extremely well. Um, they've done extremely well by focusing on sales and marketing and getting that right. But it's just not an industry in its current form selling to schools where um, the people with the best products that create the most learning win. Um, and so the idea behind Zeal was um, that at least my opinion is that now that everybody's basically got uh, a school in their pocket, in their smartphone, mm -hmm. um, once that happens, it becomes a consumer market and, and consumers will want to learn um, and they'll want to learn probably outside of the walls of schools. Uh, and, and so Zeal was basically formed to um, focus on what consumer learning would look like now that everybody's connected. And this was a big deal for me personally because at Rocketship, only about a quarter of parents were connected to the Internet in any way in kind of mid-2012. And by mid-2013, when the phones had become free or significantly discounted, it was over 90% of the parents had smartphones and were connected. And so I really felt like, wow, that that is going to happen all over the world and is going to tremendously change the opportunity for kids to kind of get a great education. If we can figure out how to create a great education in this form factor um, with a low bandwidth. So that, that's what Zeal's about. We've been at it for about a year and are just, we just got to beta a uh, few weeks ago. Probably the most radical thing we're doing is that we don't actually believe a lot in experts. So the idea that you've got a professor or a teacher that transmits knowledge um, and the student's job is to soak that in and then do something with it. We actually think that most learning is going to happen by students solving problems actively and then having other students uh, help them learn that. So, you know, what probably will be called peer-to-peer -peer learning, um, where a student who has learned something can actually provide help and explanations to students who are just learning it, um, we think is, is actually the way that kind of learning is going to happen, you know, over the next 10 or 20 years. Well, you're, you're talking to um, the son of two uh, public school teachers, so um, I, I definitely uh, wish you guys the best of luck with that. Thank you, thank you. We'll 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 see. It's uh it's going to be a new world, very very similar, I think, to the beginnings of the internet. It, if it if you know the mobile thing continues to grow as it looks like it's going to grow, um, you know, we just have to assume that some set of companies are going to figure out how to help people learn in that new world. Well, John Danner, uh, thank you for taking the time to tell us all about this. Great, thank you, Brian. 